Hey all, Oscar here. Just a very quick reminder that as we enter our ninth year of We Like Movies, it really does us a solid if you give us a rating, a review, a subscribe on iTunes, check us out on Stitcher, we're even on Spotify now. So we appreciate your continued support. Just help us spread the word. Happy 2019. What are we waiting for? Action! Let me have your attention for a moment. Let's talk about something important. Now we're talking business. Let's talk business. Yeah, let's talk business. Oh, you guys like to tell jokes and giggle and kid around, huh? I'm talking about form. I'm talking about content. I'm talking about interrelationships. I'm talking about God, the devil, hell, heaven. It's too cerebral. We're trying to make a movie here, not a film. We have a new category this year. Best film ever made by a human being. You should have got Oscar. Who are you working for? The Knutsons. Who the f*** are the Knutsons? These are big movies think about big men in tights. Roll that mother camera, Wolfie. Kiss my ass. Yeah! We like movies. This is business, and this man is taking it very, very personal. Hello, everybody. This is Oscar Dahl. I'm here with Matthew Knutson and special guest Brian Borini for We Like Movies. Retrospectating 1999, The Insider. Welcome, Brian. Thank you. Thank you for having me back. Uh, pleasure to be reinvited. It's our pleasure to have you. I mean, it's a, it's a, this is a great honor. Uh, you're one of the very few two-time guests now on the, on the podcast, which is which is excellent. Two timers club, dubious honor. <laughs> Matt, you want to talk a little bit why uh, you invited Brian on? What what the Insider meant to both of you? Well, last time uh, our good friend Brian Brini was with us, I believe we were discussing Saving Private Ryan, which I know he's always been a big fan of that film. We've talked about it many times over the years, watched it together. But that's a movie that just everybody likes, right? Like, it's a cliche to like Saving Private Ryan. There's nothing, there's nothing particularly sexy about that. But when I think about the films that Brian and I have really discussed and rewatched together and scrutinized and... Um, you know, quoted ad nauseum. It hasn't necessarily been Dazed and Confused or Saving Private Ryan or, you know, The Big Lebowski, although those things come up. We tend to like to go for a little bit of a deeper cut. Um, and it, The Insider falls, I think, right into that category because despite the fact that it was nominated for a bunch of Oscars in 1999, I do feel like it is a little more of an obscure Michael Mann movie. When I think back to watching Heat and The Insider in 1995 and 1999 respectively the thing those two films have in common the first time i watched both of them honestly even the first couple of times i watched both of them was and it's hard for me to admit this i didn't like either of them oh <laughs> and i remember vividly that like part of my education as a cinephile and as a film student was when I came to realize that I had completely missed something when it came to Heat and The Insider, and the person who made me realize that and the person who educated me on these two films, Insider especially, was Brian Barini. When I think back to my, you know, my, you know, sexual awakening, as it were, with, uh, with, with Heat and The Insider, I can't help but, but picture Brian Barini's face and, uh, you know, staying up late and drinking whiskey and, uh, discussing these films well this has been uh great but uh i gotta go now guys thanks for having me on <laughs> well he's merely really saying te- that you, you infected matt with some man-based cinephilia back in the early 2000s which i think is a yeah. great compliment yeah 
I've allowed this to take a turn, uh, take a turn for the salacious, which I guess is kind of my brand. Um, yeah, Brian's passion for for these two films, and honestly for the Insider especially, just sort of created a spark in me that caused me to re-examine these two movies to finally understand how unique and intelligent they both are, and come to appreciate the two of them as two of the most important films of the 1990s. And since that awakening, uh, you know, man has become one of my probably 10 favorite American filmmakers of all time, which is not a provocative thing for a, uh, you know, 30 something white cinephile to say, (laughs) but I remember vividly coming back from a beach trip to, uh, I believe it was to Playa del Rey with a bunch of guys from, uh, Loyola Marymount and sitting in Brian's room. We probably squeezed at least 15 or 16 guys into this room. And we literally sat there elbow to elbow for three hours watching heat and uh, I was like, oh, my God, that this is not the same movie that I saw, you know, when I was in high school. And then I think when we when he and I finally sat down to watch The Insider after I had told him that it wa- I was not a big fan and I hadn't got it when I saw it in a the theater with my mother, we just sat there and he basically kind of explained <laughs> to me all the things I'd been missing. <laughs> and uh, and he was exactly right. And now it's honestly one of my most revisited films. Yeah. Well, I- nice. I think, um, to be fair, the insider not getting it the first time, whether you're a you know sixteen year old or whether you're a thirty six year old, I think is a very reasonable position. Um, they they do not they do not take uh, they do not explain anything to the audience in that movie, which is one of the reasons I love it, and probably one of the reasons it's uh, so rewatchable. But I, I actually I had what I would say is sort of like an inverse relationship with this and Heat, where same to you when I first saw Heat. I didn't care for it that much. I thought it was long and drawn out. And I, you know, I wanted movies like Reservoir Dogs that had a lot of action and violence and stuff like that. And that was very slow and methodical. But when I saw Insider, I loved it so much that it made me revisit Heat through a different lens and sort of appreciate it like as a junior version of Insider, if you will, Um, which is probably a controversial take. I think most people probably have the opposite view. Um, But yeah, so I, I think that I had the same the insider grew on me and made me appreciate man and heat. And so I kind of revisited it the same way there. Well, Matt, why I think this is a really good choice for this uh, retrospectating project is, you know, Michael Mann had that run of movies that I, that for whatever reason, I sort of uh, associate with the DVD platform, you know, like everyone (laughs) who had good taste had last the Mohicans. They all had heat. They all had collateral. They all had, I mean, a lot of people even had Miami vice, right? The Insider seems to be the sort of lost one in there in Michael Mann's oeuvre, and it's no, that's no surprise given how poorly it did at the box office, despite you know the, the studio really uh, being a huge fan of it. So kudos to you for the selection. Let's just talk a little bit about sort of the first time we saw it and uh, sort of your context going into, into college. And so you guys talked about it a little bit, but when did you know that this was sort of um, like your movie? So the, the first time I saw it was... Um in high school, and we were actually studying the the um, trial, the tobacco trial that it was about, and we had actually, we watched the PBS, the Frontline episode about it, and saw Jeffrey Wigand doing the interview. My, my government teacher brought that in, and we watched, you know, some of that episode. So I saw it in theaters when it came out, and knew the backstory, and so that's probably the reason I had such affinity for it, was I knew the backstory, and when the real lawyers show up in the movie... I, my mind was blown. I was like, holy shit, those are the real guys. This is like like true to life uh, filmmaking. That's probably why I liked it is because I did understand the context in the background um, a little bit as much as, you know, a 16-year-old can, I guess. Well, I came to it having seen Heat 
and having not been crazy, not really, you know, hadn't really gotten heat, but I realized that heat was sort of like culturally important for no other reason that it, you know, start, start, finally starred, uh, as the trailer said, America's two most electrifying actors. And then mostly so much of my excitement about the film was the fact that that was probably the, hi- the height of my trailer junkie years. I mean, that was, you know, QuickTime and RealPlayer and Napster. And it was it was really when trailers were finally starting to be, you know, somewhat watchable online. You know, they, they I don't think we would we certainly couldn't watch them now in that pixelated form. We, we would we would never make it 30 seconds into them. But at the time, it was like, oh, yeah, I, I can kind of see Al Pacino's pixelated face and the music compression isn't terrible. So I can kind of see what they're getting at. And so literally, I remember in 99 just downloading everything you know we talked about fight club last week and where is my mind and all that i remember watching the uh, bringing out the dead trailer many many times which i feel like is a relatively forgettable film but i watched that trailer so much the dogma trailer all these 99 movies that that i was just getting so hot and bothered for american beauty of course with the bob o'reilly in it so the insider has a really really cheesy trailer if you go back and watch it on youtube but at the time i just found it to be fucking riveting as hell and it's got a lot of Pacino screaming and a lot of, you know, uh, Russell Crowe pacing around. And so I just convinced my mother that this was a really important thing and we needed to be there opening weekend. And I, you know, I needed her to buy me a ticket, I guess. No, no, I guess I would have just turned I would have just turned 17. But um, but we still decided to go together. And I feel like we were just both very bored by it. Afterward, I think it went completely over our heads, and I think we both found it to be a little too dense and a little too academic and a little too stylish, you know, style for style's sake. And remember, just so we both just kind of looked at each other afterwards and just shrugged our shoulders. And it really, it actually surprised me when it ended up getting so much uh, Academy Awards attention. I definitely saw it in the theater, and I I liked it. I mean, even at that age, I sort of liked really long, boring movies. You know, the same guy who saw it. Thin red lines six times in the theater or whatever, but but it, it kind of went away from there. Like I I didn't revisit it that much. I, I saw it maybe once or twice in college and hadn't watched it again until you know a couple weeks back. I don't, it, it's an interesting type of movie for the time when we're talking about retrospectating it, right? Because when it came out, the poll was about the tobacco industry and how evil the tobacco industry now. But I think watching it. Currently, it feels like it's more about journalism and where journalism has gone, right? So it's one of those weird movies I think has probably aged better uh, than you could have ever hoped for. I mean, what, do you guys agree with that? See that? That that was my first note before I even watched it. Was like, could this like does this even make sense in 2019? Because the whole back half of the movie is about what are the ethics of these large media companies and like will the Wall Street Journal write up uh, a story based on this dossier that's going to smear this guy. And if they do, and then they have to retract it, isn't that like horrible for their brand? And they would never do that. And I watched it today. I'm like, that would get printed like within the hour. Like that, <laughs> there wouldn't even be hesitation on it. Yeah. Will it get clicks? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> they should, yeah, they should remake the insider for 2019. Will it get Will clicks? It? Yes. Is he telling the truth? Yes. <laughs> Will we tweet it? No. <laughs> Well, I think it's a film that really deserves to be spoken of in the same conversation as something like All the President's Men, and yet it almost never does. Definitely. You know, we talk a lot about Spotlight or even The Post uh, being in the same category as All the President's Men, but you rarely hear The Insider mentioned. Or you have to appreciate the fact that All the President's Men was made in 96 and I'm sorry, 96, was made in 1976, (laughs) uh, which was two years after Nixon resigned, right? 
this um, 60 Minutes piece aired in February of 1996, and the movie came out in December of 1999. So we're only three years removed from this actual event. Yeah, and and the the events that are depicted are you know whatever maybe a year or so before that because they do the the OJ to tell you to indicate that it's the recent past. Which I have to say as a side note is like my favorite thing that any movie does is like the recent past. This this took place four years ago. In the insider, you know, it makes sense because it's a true story. But uh, you know, think of like Lebowski or something like that, where it just arbitrarily takes place six years earlier or something these, like that. Uh, these yeah. aggressions will not stand right <laughs> yeah sorry well i'm glad <laughs> yeah. i'm glad you brought that up so so indulge me with a brief uh foray into knutson's context corner here do we have some theme music can you uh, open the package for yes that? i'm gonna I'm gonna drop in my jingle all right so just to sort of catch us up on man so obviously Man comes out of grad school in London in the 60s, and he's working with Rid- Ridley Scott and Adrian Lin, and he's doing a bunch of documentary stuff. And then he shoots a bunch of footage during the, um, I guess, the 1967 protests in Paris. Anyway, he's, st- he's doing a bunch of documentary stuff, and then he starts writing and um, directing television, Starsky and Hutch, Vegas, Hawaii Five-0, all this good stuff. He gets an education in television. He gets an opportunity to direct a made-for-TV movie, The Jericho Mile. 1979 gets released in theaters in uh, Europe and wins Emmys over here. And that gets him the opportunity to do Thief in 1981, which he does with um, with James Caan and Tuesday Weld, which is a fucking fantastic movie that is very, very rewatchable. And I highly recommend anybody who hasn't seen it, check it out. Uh, I've been re- I've been rewatching all the man movies this last summer because the boys over on the Blank Check podcast were covering man in one of their series. So I went through all 11 man movies between May and September. And uh, I think Thief was the most fun to revisit because I hadn't seen it in many years. Uh, then he does The Keep, which is a batshit crazy movie that almost that is almost impossible to find uh, in any sort of decent resolution form. Uh, it's a crazy movie. It's the most unman man movie, I would say. It's the, I'd say it's the biggest outlier in his career, but it's also fucking fascinating. And it's got Ian McKellen and Gabriel Byrne and Scott Glenn, and it's got monsters and crazy sex scenes. Anyway, check it out if you've never seen it. Uh, but it's a big flop. And, uh, and he basically disowns the movie. And so I mean, he doesn't make another movie for three years. But during that time, Miami Vice, right, created in 84. Uh, it runs for five years. He never actually directs an episode, but he's an executive producer on all the episodes. And so then he does Manhunter in 86, which is also a flop, but critically respected. And that's a movie that I think that has aged very, very well. After Manhunter, he creates Crime Story, which runs from 86 to 88 does L.A. Takedown, which is basically his TV movie that was the template for what would eventually become Heat, and then he gets the opportunity to do Last of the Mohicans in 1992, which is his first big, really one of the only true hits in, in his career. It's amazing that Michael Mann has been able to stick around for so long and make movies on such a right. large, you know, make movies with such a large canvas, considering his movies very rarely make money, but they're almost always very expensive. <laughs> it's a great combo. <laughs> so yeah. I guess it's because he always manages to attract first-class talent. Like, he's always managed to attract movie stars, and that's how he gets his budgets. And so then, of course, Matt Lasmo, he gets as a hit, gives him the opportunity to make Heat, Heat is a hit, and it's a, it's kind of a cultural phenomenon. And Heat comes out in 1995. What else happens in 1995? Jeffrey Wigan records his interview oh, oh. with Mike Wallace <laughs> in 60 Minutes, right? Guy, we we should have should have guessed that. Yeah, yeah. that's pretty good. Let's let's do another take of that, Matt. <laughs> no, it's all right. I'm just I'm just gonna have to chop out about uh, three and a half seconds of uh, crickets there. <laughs> 
Um, so anyway, you know, I'm not saying I, I don't think that Michael Mann was on the set of Heat following the Jeffrey Wigand thing. That that event took place basically concurrently with the release of Heat because Heat comes out in in December of 1995, and then the 60 Minutes piece runs in February of '96. So then it takes Mann three years, which is not very much time, all things considered. Mann read Eric Roth's screenplay for The Good Shepherd, which eventually would be directed by Robert De Niro, and he was so impressed with it that he compelled Eric Roth to write The Insider with him. And so where, where do we feel that the script of The Insider is on, uh, on Michael Mann's filmography? Because to me, it's, it's one of the best screenplays of all time. I, I just couldn't say enough good things about it. And it feels like Eric Roth and uh, Michael Mann together just bring out the best of each other. Yeah, I think you've hit the nail on the head. Yeah, I mean, Eric Roth, you know, one of the all-time great screenwriters. And even though I think we all appreciate him as one of the all-time great screenwriters, I still think he's underrated (laughs) because, you know, we don't really talk about him in the same breath as Sorkin or Chayefsky or anything, but we really should. Because if you look at his filmography, it's impressive. I mean, he's had, he has things like Forrest Gump, which, you know, perhaps haven't aged as well, but he's written so many films that are kind of like culturally so relevant. Basically, Brian, what you're saying is that sort of Roth tempers man a little bit and make and like takes out a little, you know, like pulls a little bit of the manness out of it, the distracting manness. This movie is so much. It's all dialogue, right? It's a corporate thriller. So there, there's, you know, there's a couple sort of thriller type things where Russell Crowe finds the bullet or they get the emails and he's sneaking out in the garden at night. There's a few things like that. But, you know, when you think of this movie, it's people sitting in a corporate boardroom talking about you know whether it's cigarettes or the news media or whatever it is and so it's it's so much dialogue and as we've said you know from the beginning is that this is a complex story that they don't um, put any kid gloves on they just kind of give it to you straight and you have to you know you're not going to get the first probably 45 minutes of what's happening and then the end you know all the like Unabomber Montana stuff comes out of left field they don't explain it at all until like what the last four minutes of the film, maybe you're just confused as hell about what's happening. And so the just, it's so dependent on having this super engaging dialogue between lawyers and journalists and producers and news presidents. And they they just, it's perfect. I mean, it's like a perfect screenplay to me. I think that's the main point, which is, this is not some just garden variety action movie. Uh, he's making phone calls exciting throughout this film. Right. Like the way he does phone calls is super impressive. One of my favorite scenes is Pacino on the beach having that phone call and it's cinematic. Like it, it, that is, that's a rare thing, uh, you know, to make work uh, in the way he does. And so to make a movie like this so propulsive and energetic <laughs> with not exactly terribly exciting sort of a story to cover uh, I think it's got to be up there. I mean, Matt, where do you see even Insider since you've watched them all recently, uh, sort of in the man oeuvre? You know, I'm I'm always going to be one of those boring assholes who just like, you know, nothing can touch Heat. He, heat's always going to be my favorite, but if somebody said, yeah, but The Insider is a better movie. The Insider is his best movie. The Insider is his most sophisticated, his most mature, his most disciplined movie. I don't think I could disagree with that. You know, like I'm going to watch Miami Vice and Heat three times as much as I watch The Insider. But The Insider is probably a better film pound for pound. Those are the two man movies I've watched in the last six months. I've watched Heat and The Insider, and I think I enjoyed The Insider more. Uh, I mean, I love them both, but maybe this is just a symptom of becoming sort of an old white guy where I really just like like corporate thrillers and journalistic movies like 
insider or uh, yeah like spotlight like michael clayton like i wish every yeah, movie was michael yeah. clayton you know <laughs> uh, like, you, you can make you can make 10 movies a year about you know journalists going up against the man and that will be my those will be my favorite movies of the year so uh i don't know if it's getting boring and older but this is exactly what i want out of a movie at this point brian uh, brian bruni likes to troll me on occasion late at night he'll he'll send me a text like you know i just rewatched heat with my wife it's not that great or he'll send me, or he'll send me a text, and he'll be like, you know, I just rewatched Michael Clayton. I'm not crazy about the ending of that movie, and he'll just like fucking stab me through the heart with this shit. And I feel like it's just kind of a hot take, trying to troll a little bit, just trying to like jab me. I don't think he really, he really means that. But on any given day, he's he's had some pretty hot takes about both Heat and Michael Clayton, which have blown my mind. If if I may, Your Honor, <laughs> defend myself here for thirty seconds. Michael Clayton, the third act, and specifically the very end, just kills me because I think it is also an amazing movie. I think. It's very well written, very well directed and acted. Tom um, Tom Wilkinson is amazing in that. But the very end, when it's like, he was recording you, the cops are around the corner, busted, just, just is too much of a cliche. So Michael Clayton. Even the last, even literally the last, even in the cab at the end, you know, the graduate ending or whatever, just holding on him. Yeah. Here's, here's, you know, here's 50, just drive. It, it's fine. I, it, I just think that it does such a great job for an hour and like, 37 minutes of being very um, sort of authentic feeling and very sophisticated. And then it just ends with this sort of like B cop movie ending where like he was recording you and now you're busted. You're going to jail, lady. All right, Matt, we're going to start a new podcast series and we're going to invite people on who, who dislike the endings of movies that are actually awesome and have them explain to us how they would have ended the movie, smart guy. So, yeah, that's what we're going to call it. Very fair point. Very fair point. And then, and then to the heat thing, I like I said earlier, Heat is one of my top, you know, maybe 20, 30 favorite movies. Love Heat. Watched it dozens of times at this point, probably. And uh, my wife had never seen it, so we rewatched it, or I rewatched it and showed it to her. And the thing that was killing her was just the Robert De Niro love story with Amy Brenneman. What is the point of this? And it's there's a couple of cheesy scenes where there's like a sort of like a green screen background of the city and like the lighting is a little weird. We, she had some problems with that and it just sort of killed it for me. Like if you're sitting there watching a movie with somebody and the whole time they're like telling you what's wrong with it, you're like, <laughs> wait, is this? See, that's bad? when I double, that's when I double down. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, but just going back to, I think, Oscar, I, I agree with you 100%. Like when I'm looking for a movie on a Friday night, I'm always looking for a thriller, a political thriller, a corporate thriller, something like that. And so I actually, I had a question down here in my notes. Is The Insider the best corporate thriller movie ever made? Uh, besides Michael Clayton. <laughs> besides the first hour and 37 minutes of Michael Clayton. Well, it's interesting that you, I mean, Michael Clayton comes out in 2007. Uh, the Insider comes out in 99. Those are considered two of the best years in film history and you know 2007 is also that there will be blood no country for old men atonement year right i i think the 2007 slate of best picture nominees is probably a little better than the 99 slate maybe cider house rules hasn't and the green mile haven't uh, aged quite as well seeing as we will not be covering them on this particular series but um, but is it the best corporate thriller of all time? That's interesting. Is it is it a corporate thriller? Is it a movie about journalism? Is it a movie? About, I mean, is it a diptych? Is the first half about Wigan and the second half about Bergman? Is it that binary? I've, I've, I think about that every time I watch the film. And then I, I think I waffle also back and forth on whether I like the first or second half better. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's a combination of a you know journalistic thriller and then a corporate thriller. I think, I think you're right. I think it's, there's a first half, second half feel to it, where basically sort of Russell Crowe taps in Al Pacino to be the lead in the second half, which is and you know we don't have to put every movie in a specific box, but if you know, I think it might be higher up on the corporate thriller rankings than it is on the journalism film rankings because i think they're better journalism films than corporate thrillers actually yeah i, I think that's fair and in fact just re-watching it again this week it always shocks me how quickly they get to the interview and how quickly you see russell crowe doing the other times you know i wish i hadn't done it yeah there are times i feel com- com- compelled to do it you know he's doing his jeffrey wygan like i'm like whoa we're like an hour into this movie and we've already got the you know, footage on tape. It feels like a lesser version of this story that that is, or, or maybe not a lesser version, but just a different version of this. That is the climax of the movie. But but this film like does this magic trick where it sort of has a first act climax with that, and then it repurposes that at the end, and it hits even harder because you know that it's coming because you know you've already seen it being laid down on tape. Now you get to see it like deployed. Right on a larger scale, you get to see all the people react to it. You get to see Pacino's wife and all the people at the airport and the guys in Missoula or uh, Helena, Montana, who are tracking the Unabomber, but they still had time to turn sixty minutes on. <laughs> you know, well, exactly. all these FBI guys are still great story tonight, Lowell. <laughs> no, I love how he takes a second to be able to compliment it. By the way, that was a great show tonight. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and then just because we're just kind of negging on it. The uh, slow-mo Haley Eisenberg turning to look at her daddy when he had already already once in the movie said, like, my daughters need to know why I did this. And we're like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and complete. It's a, it's a little much, Michael Mann. Okay, so, so we might as well just dig into that scene now. You're, you're talking about the scene where he's in the hotel room before he, before he goes and grabs the phone and hops on the no, line with Pacino. I'm talking about the very end when he um, when they do air it, and it's the guy in the airport, and the guy's listening, and he's sitting at home making dinner for his daughters, and Haley Eisenberg turns and looks at She's sitting on the couch watching him interview, and she turns and looks at him, and it's in slow-mo, her turning and looking at him. Here, I know exactly the shot you're talking about. Here's how many times I've seen this movie. It's actually not Haley Eisenberg. It's the older sister who turns and looks. But, oh. I know, but I know, but that just goes to show you I've watched this movie, you know, three times in the last three months. I was uh, trying to get a shout out for name name dropping Haley Eisenberg, yeah. but that's all yeah. right. You can... No, I was I was going to go. <laughs> I was going to after after I corrected you, I was going to go with you on that because it is crazy. And, and sh- her being in this, I remember it got a laugh in the theater when she showed up the because girl. she was a bigger star than Russell Crowe at this point. Right. Oh, oh yeah. God, I forgot about that. Yeah, the Pepsi Girl was a huge phenomenon. She was on the Tonight Show. She was everywhere. Those were the biggest Super Bowl commercials. I mean, she was she was a huge star. You know, Jesse Eisenberg's little sister. I I also love the I love the class sort of just looking at him in awe. Is that what I'm supposed to get out of that scene? I always found that scene a little. The, the right. ver- at the end when they show him the very last time. Yeah, yeah. Where the I mean, what what is the class's general sentiment at that point? Appreciation, awe. Yeah. I think it's the same thing. Like you, you know, if you were in high school and your teacher was on sixty minutes, it it it'd be a big deal. You'd be like, oh wow, that's Mister Wigan, that like violent criminal that I guess is a uh, whistleblower for a good cause. Well, it is it is kind of risky, you know, on on man and Eric Roth's part. And I kind of got the impression in my research that obviously couldn't get Wigan's involvement in this in this because he was still under his confidentiality agreement. But it is risky to sculpt this narrative around this very complicated and flawed character. I mean, the movie doesn't judge him, but it also lays out some things about him 
It doesn't even necessarily care about whether or not they're true. Can we trust this guy? Is this guy violent? Is did this guy beat his wife? Is this guy an alcoholic? Is this can this guy be trusted? I mean, the movie plays with that in the second act in a really kind of provocative way. You know, Pacino or Bergman rather never doubts him and always stays on his side because he's he's made up his mind. Yeah. But is and is I, he it, the main character or is Bergman the main character? That's the other question. And, and does it and does that distinction even matter? Yeah, so I I definitely think that Al Pacino, Lil Bergman is the main character. I mean, we open do we we open with him in the car, right? Yeah, going going um in Beirut or wherever he is. And so, yeah, so I think he, he kind of bookends it and it's his story, I think, because he transcends both stories, whereas Jeffrey Wigand, you know, plays a much smaller part in the second half. But I, I think w- what's interesting about it, too, is that I don't care about all the thriller stuff of like, you know, the emails he's getting and like the person in his backyard and that stuff is not exciting at all because you've seen it a few times and you know nothing's really happening. And I think there is, you know, in, in the actual recorded history some evidence that he was making it up, you know, and they say at the end, they never caught the person. But I think I read online that like the FBI concluded that he was making up these fake death threats to himself. So I think, I think sort of addressing that in a realistic way without sort of burning him and making him look like an asshole, but just planting that seed, I think is a sort of classy move on Michael Mann's part. But yeah, I just think it's interesting that what what is theoretically the thrilling, exciting part of the story of these, you know, what are they doing to him? They're messing with him. To me, is actually like the driest, you know, it's the time I get up and go to the bathroom or whatever. Like, I don't care about these scenes. Yeah, I mean, I, I think this movie tremendously benefits from having the first half focus on Wigand and then the second half being the better half of the, of the journalistic sort of going against the man stuff that I always fucking love. Um, because, you know, if those two halves had been flipped for whatever reason in the story, yeah, I, I think it's sort of you know fizzles out but you get rid of sort of the more boring less interesting stuff right away and like you said it does get to the interview really quickly which is always sort of jarring You're like how much movies left right but it just yeah everything with al pacino for the last hour and a half is just killer i fucking love every second of it yeah it's probably my favorite part like al pacino cruising through new york going in and out of high rises you know going into bars and strong arming just getting shit done exactly you know? <laughs> just, and you know I, I had a little i have a little short list here of like dis- distinguishing factors like recurring motifs or themes in man movies the, the number one of the list has got to be just like professionals being professional right yeah people being really good at their goddamn jobs yeah that, there's nothing more exciting than that in these kind of movies and just him you know just him just going to bars and just like getting up in in new york times journalists faces and 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 there's this great um there's a great sequence where man really ramps up the sexy uh saxophone stuff is that when they're delivering the papers in the uh, yeah that's a great scene too i love that like just that little detail of just the guys hopping out of the back of the truck you know throwing the papers in there it looks really goddamn cold and uh, it's just it's just so evocative and you're just like yeah okay this is really turned this is kind of turned into a sydney lumet movie for a second here Lowell Bergman, Al Pacino's character, has a habit of just hanging up on people. I, I don't think he ever says goodbye to anybody in the entire film. He just, like, puts the phone down. He's done with that call. It's just kind of a sweet move I might start adopting. Well, your point is well taken about this movie, like, sort of being so defined by phone conversations. You know, like, it is just, it is a movie that is about people on the phone, in profile, adjusting their glasses, you know, sipping out of coffee mugs, just leaning into the payphone. And it's just, it's goddamn riveting. And man just has a way of getting right up in your face. And he, I don't know, he, he's able to literally like put the camera behind 
uh, Jeffrey Wigand's glasses in a, in a way I just had I had certainly right. had never seen at the time. Even though I wasn't crazy about the movie, right. just from an aesthetic standpoint, I was like, I, I've just never seen something from that perspective before. I can't believe, you know, Russell Crowe was 33 years old when he made this movie. I, I have a note here that, that that that's weirdly I think it's aged kind of poorly because. I think of Russell Crowe as like looking like Jeffrey Wigand now. Like he, right? He's oh, he grew into he grew old. into this look. <laughs> yeah, yeah. and so when you see it now, you don't appreciate it that he was. You know, it'd be like if like Ryan Gosling or somebody like that was like dressed up as this old man and doing this impersonation. It's it's sort of remarkable for the time. But the reason I bring it up is because like the makeup. I think the makeup is quite extraordinary, and you know, Crow the way Crow holds himself is extraordinary, and the movie is very it's just very intimate when it comes to him it's it does not hesitate to get up in his face and to show him to being all paunchy and uh, this is also one of the all-time great you know old dudes wearing frumpy pants movies like there's a there's a great, some pleats a this, pleat is, this is smack dab in the middle of the large pants era yeah yeah there's a great shot where russell crowe and al pacino are standing out on the lawn outside of that mansion yeah. in mississippi and they're just sharing they're just having a whiskey and having a laugh it's one of the few times in the movie where anybody smiles and it's and the yep. wind is just blowing their frumpy pants man and they are just looking like frumpy dudes in their 50s and it's great it's funny you called that out. I I swear, this time I was watching it, I was like, I don't know that I have ever seen it. Like, it looked like a new scene to me. I'm like, is this an extended cut? Because it's a really short take. It, and I was thinking, I was like, is this like a cocktail party after the deposition? Like, what the hell is happening right now? <laughs> Um, and I just had never thought about it before. So I was like, this is just a new scene to me, I guess. And we know that Jeffrey Wigand likes to tilt a few. And, you know, we know that the lawyers have, have a nice spread in Mississippi. And it was right. a big decision for him to decide to go on the record. So, of course, they'd be celebrating a little bit, right? Yeah. No, no, it's fair. I, it just occurred to me that I, because I, I always think of the um, the earlier scene before they go and they're standing around. And he's, you know, trying to come up with the calculus to make the decision or whatever he says. And then, you know, fuck it, let's go to court. Yeah, um, it's that, that's the, the iconic scene I think of on that waterfront in front of that mansion. Yes. And I just didn't realize there was a back half of that, too. And that is probably the most famous scene in the whole movie, I would I would say. I mean, and it's and it really holds up like it's it's a movie. And here's another man motif men struggling to make difficult decisions right or men putting each other to difficult decisions that's that that's kind of maybe what that that maybe just be the central theme of heat actually and yeah him saying i can't seem to i can't seem to come up with the context to decide or whatever that incredible piece of music from gustavo sante santoyala kicks in which was so overused in the late 90s and early 2000s but is an amazing piece of music and and that's also that was one of the things that um as I said earlier, the real story, that's a real reenactment of what happened. They were standing there and he said, fuck it, let's go to court. And I remember in the PBS frontline thing, they retell that story and he talks about that. So that, yeah, that, that fuck it, let's go to court is a real, real thing. Love that. Because it sounds, it sounds like a masculine man line. And then that feeds into, and that feeds into, Brian, what I presume is got to be one of your favorite, if not your favorite scenes, the Bruce McGill scene, right? I, I remember you quoting that scene all throughout college. Wipe that smirk off your face. How can you not? I uh, I wrote that down as my favorite scene in this movie, guys. I think it depreciates in value a little bit because Bruce McGill's speech is actually shorter than I always remember it. Like it, It's really kind of like four or five lines. It's amazing. And his delivery, I mean, whatever they paid him, they got their money's worth for that for that scene. And and what's his name? Hauser, the, you know, the villain attorney actually is really the one who sort of sets it up and does an amazing job object to the form of the question like 
just really being an asshole. Yeah, um, and that is apparently shot in the actual, it's, it's not even a courthouse. It's like the back of a courthouse or something. Uh, didn't they use the actual courthouse or the actual place where they did the deposition? I think I just read that. On yeah, yeah, whatever the location is where it actually took place is where they shot it. And you can tell because it is the single most boring set a, a, a big budget movie scene has ever been shot in. It is so fucking bland, but that just it just reinforces man's uh, dedication to authenticity, right? Films always use like a few good men style courtrooms, and no, that's not what real courtrooms look like. So it's always great to see a shitty looking corporate you know, bureaucratic office and yeah. There's a great shot. I don't think I'd ever noticed it before, but recently on my, you know, 25th viewing of this movie or whatever it was, I noticed that in the middle of Bruce McGill's rant, man just really quickly cuts over to the stenographer who's who's typing mm-hmm. away and you realize she <laughs> literally had to take that all down. She's got this wonderful look on her face where she's like, yep, typing exactly as he said it, putting everything in the record right here. It's just a wonderful look. Because he says, she typed it up on a little machine <laughs> yes, over there. Yes, exactly. Yeah, but I actually, if, if we're talking about just favorite scenes, I think there's, it's kind of like a bookend scene where they're in, um, is it Don Hewitt? Uh, uh, what's Philip, Baker, Philip Baker Hall. Philip, Philip Baker Hall, yeah. They're in his office twice. The first time where they say they're not going to air it and you know, uh, Lowell and Chris Wallace are pissed off. And then the second time when Lowell, you know, Ooh, Mike Wallace, the, sir. <laughs> oh, excuse me. Yeah, Christopher Plummer, Mike Wallace. How dare I? <laughs> but yeah, the, those two kind of back to back. I think they're maybe like fifteen or twenty minutes apart. Oh man, that's like the shot in the Chaser, where that that to me is like the essence of the movie. If I could watch, it might be in my top five, if not my favorite scene in all of cinema history. <laughs> is Al Pacino just taking those fucking guys to task? And yeah, you know, the cat totally out of the bag <laughs> yes it, it might be the most the single most quotable scene in the whole movie because it is Pacino, it is it is pacino's most unhinged scene and uh it's the closest of him going into vince and hannah in heat territory that's what i was gonna say is the uh the cat totally out of the bag is identical to but she got a great ass exactly. like it's exact you same can overlay those and the audio would look the same yeah <laughs> And it, it also includes uh, not exactly a bastion of anti-capitalist sentiment, right? No, you fucked you. Don't invert stuff. Well, let's talk about Pacino real quick because I think wh- whether it was Roth's help with man or whatever, but like this is much new, more nuanced performance than he. It would be an, almost impossible not to be. Uh, <laughs> but I, I honestly, I think this is might be the best if it, you know at least the top couple of like Pacino's later half career, one of his best performances because this is a, like a heroic character and he plays it with you know sort of typical aggressiveness and showiness, but there's a real warmth to this guy that 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 comes across that makes you just. One of my one of the greatest heroes of cinema in my mind. I, I wish Pacino had done sort of more of this in the last twenty years. I'm kind of surprised that Christopher Plummer got all that Best Supporting Actor buzz back then. They didn't. You know, I don't know if they put Pacino in Best Actor, but I feel like Pacino should have gotten some awards for this thing. Yeah, de- definitely agree. I mean, this is like the perfect Pacino role where he's like world weary, downtrodden, exhausted. Um, he just has that look. He does so much with, with just his eyes and not saying stuff, especially, you know, when Mike Wallace tells him I'm with Don and Eric on this one. And he's just like devastated look just emptiness and then walks out. I mean, it's, it's amazing. And I think I was, when I was rewatching this, I was texting that and just saying, I think Al Pacino, and I'm probably wrong because I, I don't know all actors of all time, but 
he is the best actor at just delivering lines as if they were naturally what he would be saying. And he just has this ability to say these extremely lengthy monologues that seem as if they're just coming sort of naturally. And he, he's just saying them off the cuff. Um, and it, it's, it's, his intelligence is very clear. His sort of cynicism and optimism, like sort of fighting with each other are, are, you know, the most interesting part of the second half of the movie. I love Al Pacino because Scent of a Woman was my favorite movie when I was a kid, <laughs> which, you know, I can talk trash about Michael Clayton, but yeah, well, let's... Scent of a Woman is, <laughs> is a rough spot. But so, so I'm used to the like over the top Vincent Hanna heat style Al Pacino. And this is, I agree with you, like it's dialed down from 14 to like seven or eight and it's just perfect it's right in the sweet spot it might be in a lot of ways the most perfect combination of that you know that more subtle that more nuanced that more 1970s stuff he was doing you know a lot of that more kind of lumetti stuff and then just the batshit crazy post heat stuff i mean it is it's it's an incredible sweet spot and and it comes right smack in the dil- in the middle of this run listen to pacino's run in the 90s i got it written down here 1990 he start he starts in the 90s with dick tracy right and he gets oscar nominated for it and that's and people say that like he didn't go over the top until after he let's remember that Dick Tracy came out in 1990. But I would still maintain that he's fucking phenomenal in that movie. And it seems like the Academy agreed the same year he does The Godfather Part Three, which is a movie that nobody respects, but he's excellent. In, and he's also playing a man, you know, 30 years older than he actually was. I didn't realize they made a third one of those. <laughs> <laughs> In 91, he does Frankie and Johnny, which is low-key and kind of romantic. It's more of the kind of the Sea of Love style. In 92, he does Glengarry Glen, Glen, Gary, Glen Ross, which he also gets Oscar nominated for. And then he wins an Oscar for Scent of a Woman the same year. I'm a big Scent of a Woman defender. I'm with you, Brian. I mean, I know you said that it was like your favorite movie as a kid. Something tells me that you've probably reevaluated since then. But that's a movie that nobody respects. And I still revisit that movie at least once a year, usually around Thanksgiving. I, I've been meaning to. Yeah, the rare Thanksgiving movie, not a not a Christmas movie. Yeah, pair pair um, that with planes, trains, and automobiles, and you got a good weekend there. Ninety three, he does Carlito's Way, which is a very underrated um, Brian De Palma movie. Uh, he does Two Bits in nineteen ninety five. I have no idea what that is, uh, but the same year he also does Heat, which of is you know is obviously a turning point in terms of Pacino's uh, ability to go joyously over the top. Then he does you know City Hall in ninety six. 97 he does donnie brasco and the devil's advocate there we go <laughs> yes so john milton baby <laughs> and then in 99 he does the insider in december i'm sorry does the insider in november and then he ends the year and the decade and the millennium with uh, any given sunday which is uh, a movie that uh, we will actually be covering next month and our good friend dan kelly reached out to me today just to confirm that he's still invited onto that episode, which I'm I'm very nice. very happy to say. <laughs> so I looking forward to listening to that exactly. And then he does a Chinese Coffee in 2000, which he also directs. And then he does Insomnia in 2002, which I maintain up until The Irishman was his last truly great performance. I think you could say well, that the nine insider... years later in 2011 he did make Jack and Jill. Let's not forget Fair that. enough. Yes, thank you for proving my point. Did, did we miss? Did we miss Simone, or is it pronounced Sim One? I forget. <laughs> See that, and that was during the that was the like the Nadir, right? The fallow period. The yeah, years. I mean Jack and Joe was a big hit, and I hear he's actually quite funny in that movie. But I mean, he's been quote unquote irrelevant at least in the feature film realm. I mean, he's obviously still doing interesting stuff on television. Angels, I was going to say Angels in the Outfield, uh, Angels in America, you know, some of the stuff that he's been doing um, on HBO. No, but that 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 run in the 90s, I mean, like I'm guessing like Tom Hanks and Tom Cruise probably had better runs on paper. 
but just in terms of somebody who was around in the 70s and was like the definitive 70s star winning awards and being amazing 20 years later to have that kind of sort of resurgence run in the 90s is pretty remarkable. I mean, this is one of my, The Insiders, one of my all-time favorite Pacino performances. I, I think it's, yeah, I think I think there's just something very nuanced about it. But I also love Plummer, and I can't believe that Plummer was passed over for a supporting actor nomination here. It doesn't just seem like just the, just the quintessential supporting actor nomination character. Oh, he didn't even get nominated. No, it wasn't even that. nominated. The, all of the attention went to Crow. It was all about Crow gaining the weight and playing 25 years older than he was. It, it, this, it was all about Crow when it came to the critical love. Nobody talked about Pacino or Plummer. Yeah, that's a huge mistake. Plummer was 70 at the time, playing Mike Wallace, uh, who was 77 when this took place. Uh, Mike Wallace was very, very public about how much he disliked this film and this portrayal for obvious reasons. Yeah, what else is he going to say? He can't say. But he's he's also got a couple of bravura scenes, you know, like he's he's got the one big scene, yeah. you know. Mike? <laughs> Mike? Mike? You corporate lackey. Who told you your incompetent little fingers had the requisite skills to edit me? I, I rewatched that scene a few minutes ago before we started recording because it's such a standout. And... You know, Gina Gershon is actually also quite excellent in this movie, and she does this really subtle thing where she she steps back as if she's convinced that there's a halfway decent chance he might take a swing at her. Like if you like, if yeah. you really watch Gina yeah, Gershon, she plays she, well. she plays she plays it really interestingly. Like she she kind of steps back, she looks over at Philip Baker Hall for a second, and you can tell in her eyes she's like, "There's a fifty fifty chance he may just try and punch me." <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, she 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 does a great job. I mean, everybody, you know, what's his name? Stephen Toblowski is like Eric, whatever the CBS president. I mean, just there's such good villains because I mean. The real villains, Michael Gambon, thank you. The, the real villains and the, the lawyers on the bad side are excellent villains. They all have very small parts and they're not menacing in like a violent way, the way normal villains are, but they're just awful. You just hate them so much, but they're not really in it. They're that almost much. cartoonish. They're a little, they're, they're like right on that foghorn leghorn edge of being a little, almost on the cartoony side, right? Like Gambon's really digging. He's, he's really chewing into that accent. Well, and that, that scene, like, yeah, we, I think we, we could talk about that, um, just because it's amazing for all kinds of reasons. But but there's no, you know, the villains are like cowardice and it's sort of like the corporate people not wanting to do the right thing. So they really did an amazing job of casting people that you just don't like. Like Gina Gershon, who's great and fantastic. You just like, fuck her in this movie, right? <laughs> she's a corporate lackey. She has that wonderful, I mean, she only has a couple scenes in the movie, but the first one where she's, you know, we're all in this together, we're all CBS. It's just, it's so oily and so calculated and so lawyery. She's just great. And this is only a couple years, this is only a couple years off of Bound and, and Showgirls. And Yeah, she shows up in this and is like, what is she doing here with this suit on? And uh, De- De- Debbie Mazar is kind of in the same so kind of in the same category, right? Like she's she's always been a great Italian. Is that uh, Russell Crowe's wife? No, that's um. She's on the team. Debbie Mazar is uh is, oh, is Bergman's yeah, yeah. Assistant. assistant, yeah. But um, no, his wife is um she's she's Pacino's wife in um in Heat. Diane Venora. Her name's Diane Venora. Diane Diane Venora. There you go. Okay. She she I mean I guess she kind of is a villain, which is like unfortunate. Like she's not a sympathetic character at all. You really kind of dislike her. I mean, she's playing an eerily similar character to the character she played right. in Heat, right? And, you know, we could... Michael Mann might have a woman. Yeah, I mean, Ma- Mann and, and, you know, even my beloved Christopher Nolan, uh, you know, and obviously Mann might be Nolan's idol for a number of reasons. They're interested in men and men's relationship to one another and men struggle with one another. And even when men are claiming that they're doing this for the women in their life, whether it's wives or children, they are oftentimes doing it 
for their own ego, right? Yeah, women are kind of obstacles in all of his movies. Or or they're like the silent support of like Pacino's wife, you know? I mean, she has maybe 10 lines in the movie. What are you going to do? Think about what you're going to do. Well, which I just also want to add as a side note, this is another thing that I just picked up. Again, I've seen this movie front to back 15 times probably at least and a bunch more just sort of partially. It did not occur to me until maybe the last year or two that he's in Berkeley. And every time they show that house in the hills that they're, that he's in Berkeley, they, they don't make a point of it. They don't talk about it. But I was thinking about it. I was like, what are those hills that he's in? Like, that's not in New York somewhere. Are they up in Connecticut or somewhere? And one of his sons, uh, Brecken Meyer, I think, of all people, is wearing like a cow shirt or something like that. And so I looked it up and he lived in Berkeley. And they, it's just another thing that man doesn't explain to you that he is in California. They don't show him getting on a plane or like they don't have, you know, title cards that are like Berkeley, California or anything like that. He just is in Berkeley. Now. I mean, again, not to not to double drop uh, Nolan uh, twice in 30 seconds, but I think these two directors are very similar in terms of how they kind of just expect you to stick with them. They don't hold your hand. And when they go and pick up the New York Times that has OJ's face on it, Debbie Mazar doesn't say, boy, can you believe this OJ? Isn't this a crazy trial? How about all this shit? It's the trial of the century. No. <laughs> Isn't this the most important trial of 1995? <laughs> Exactly. You know, in Michael Mann movies, though, at the end of the day, the whole thing makes sense, which is sometimes Nolan's uh, bugaboo. All but right. uh, <laughs> let's just segue right into Interstellar, why don't, why don't we? Let's talk about this movie and this type of movie because it's sad to say. Do you see movies like this ever getting greenlit again? Like this, this seems like one of the last of its kind. Uh, especially because it didn't even make money when it came out, but you have a you know big name director coming off a huge hit uh, twenty years ago when sort of mid budget movies were doing their thing uh, about sort of you know quote unquote boring idea corporate thriller. This is kind of a unicorn of a movie, uh, just that it exists. Like Spotlight, I suppose is 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 similar in in, in that regard. We do see some journalism movies, but I was gonna say, what was the uh, Clooney Ryan Gosling one? Ides of March. Ides of March. That that was kind of had a similar thing. It was a little more thriller mystery than this. But yeah, I, I agree. This feels like the idea of what is the integrity of the news organization and what does that mean. It feels like if they did it now, it would be too sort of like in the. I hate to say this, but like in the Trumpian era, it would be too like journalists are heroes and democracy dies in darkness and like rah, 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 rather than the sort of realistic approach, which is, hey, this is a corporation. They have to make decisions for the corporation. And sometimes that gets in the way of the journalism and you have to fucking fight for it if it's important. And unfortunately, the audience for this movie, even in 1999, just didn't really show up to support it. And if they weren't going to show up to support it in 1999, <laughs> they're probably not going to show up to support it today, right? They probably would support it on Netflix. And I, you know, I apologize for always having to <laughs> use the N word, but um, you know, that it probably would. It wouldn't be a, an episode unless we invoke Netflix at least once. It, these these kinds of movies don't get made. I mean, Todd Haynes has Dark Waters coming out next month which looks very much like this kind of thing. It actually looks very much like a civil action, for example. You know, the, uh, the, <laughs> the, the reviews actually came out for that movie today. Oh, is that right? I didn't, I didn't catch them. Not good. Not good. It doesn't seem like Todd Haynes' wheelhouse, and, uh, and the trailers would lead me to believe that it just all feels a little bit forced. But, um, so it doesn't, it, that doesn't necessarily surprise me. But uh, yeah, it is, this is a vestige of, of, of a bygone era, unfortunately. And at the time, it, it, it apparently cost somewhere between 60 and 90 million. Only took in about 60 worldwide, despite the fact that it went on to get nominated for uh, seven Oscars. You know, The Post, I think, is sort of a similar, it, it, totally different style, but at least similar themes, right? It's like, what, what are they going to 
what are the corporate interests of a news organization? And I think that's what I was saying earlier when it's like, look how majestic Tom Hanks and all of his newsmen are. And like, look how they triumph over this. And Meryl Streep is this hero who makes this tough decision and she's, you know, a hero. Al Pacino is presented as a hero because Michael Mann loves him and he loves that character and he wants to show him like that. But the rest of the people are, are not, you know. Uh, Mike Wallace is depicted as sort of being slimy and sort of switching sides wherever the wind blows. And yeah, so you're saying this is all just a little too real for uh, for, for mainstream <laughs> audiences. You couldn't even handle it, man. These Gen Zs, they couldn't even handle that. Movie. <laughs> no, but, but but I think I think that's right when you talk about the Post, which is people understand that trope of like newspapers you know, a, a, a journalistic team going to get a story and working against, uh, you know, all the people that want the story squashed or whatever. But something like this, which is complicated and muddy and nuanced, it seems like it'd be an impossible sell both to studios and to a general audience at this point. Plus, you know, comparing Spielberg and man is like comparing apples and hand grenades or whatever, right? So it's just, there's just something about Spielberg's bedside manner and his mainstream approach. And I don't mean that necessarily as a slight or an insult. The casting of Meryl Streep and Tom Hanks and those kinds of roles, like I, I think that man's version of The Post may be better, but it's certainly not going to be as accessible and it's probably not going to get be a hit and get nominated for Best Picture. I just don't see man casting tom hanks even though i would certainly would love to see that version of that movie he did cast tom cruise so yes he did so so just just to sort of like wrap up the context of it all so after this you know this movie is not a big hit but it's far and away is the biggest critical hit of his career and he gets his first oscar nomination for it so then he follows it up with ali which i think is a very flawed film even though i think it has some interesting things about it and it is collateral which is a big hit which i think is a movie that has not aged particularly well but hanks and fox are both fantastic Cruise and Fox. i'm sorry Cruise and fox thank you Cruise and fox are both i would fantastic. love to see hanks in that role that would be fantastic. <laughs> well originally the fox originally jamie fox was supposed to be played by adam sandler can you imagine seeing you know imagine that version of that movie Ooh. tom cruise yes. and adam sandler yeah i can yeah isn't that what the new uh, dirty gems or Un- whatever it's uncut called gems, uncut gems, yeah. Yeah. and then miami vice which to me is just one of his biggest artistic triumphs but is an epic flop and is really a divisive film even though it's one of my favorite man movies and then public enemies which should have been a triumph and actually was a hit but i think that movie is just kind of a big old failure god damn it matt i agree with you no no i I love miami vice it's it's very silly but a ton of fun and just just awesome in general yeah i think public enemies is awful just an awful movie i actually only saw public enemies once um, it took me about a week to get my hearing back afterwards. It was so <laughs> mother effing loud. Yeah. But um, yeah, not a fan. Yeah, it's not good. But you know what is good? Black Hat, which is the last film he made, which is one of the biggest flops of his entire career. That movie fucking rocks. I did not even see that movie. I think it's like 20% on Rotten Tomatoes, so I have also not seen it. It's Chris Hemsworth, right? It's Yeah, it's Hemsworth and Viola Davis, and it's it's fantastic. So check it out. It's it's his 11th movie. It may be the last movie he ever makes. We'll, we'll see. Looking back on his career, there I do feel a little regret that he didn't make more movies like The Insider, you know, that weren't sort of big action things, right? Like I, I, I want his sort of energy and style and propulsiveness in this corporate thriller, political thriller, whatever you, whatever you want, uh, that doesn't involve action. Because I think he can make sort of material that would otherwise feel cliche or boring, super exciting. Yes, a- absolutely agree. And it's and it's you know casting of Pacino and I think the casting is sort of one of the through things because, like I was saying, Pacino does everything so naturally. It feels like it's organic conversation coming from him. But everybody in the movie does like that Michael Gambon scene. 
I mean, he's he's subtle, but he's kind of, you know, over the top in a way. It just still feels right. Like, you feel like, that guy really exists. That guy really talks like this. He's a son of a bitch, and he will <laughs> gut you with a fishing knife if he has to. <laughs> we get some final thoughts, Matt? Yeah, I, got, I just got a couple stray things that I want that, that I'm sure will inspire something. I love movies that aren't set in the Middle East, but open in the Middle East. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, uh, like, like The Exorcist, The Exorcist, for example, you know, uh, that? Yeah, yeah. Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, oh, nice. you know, Sky, Skyfall. I just, I love that there's just something, I love places, the movies that are just, they, they just open, cold open in some place, really, really exotic, even though the, the plot has absolutely nothing to do with where that's set. I, that for some reason, I just love that as a, as a cold open. I, I, I love that too, and not the Middle East specifically, but just the way that they, this movie does sort of bookend with his previous story and his next story mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right? that's a really good point it, it's an amazing way to be like this is just what this dude does or you know people like this this is what they do they get the story and just just as a side note one other thing is there's no real understanding of time in this movie him getting fired at the beginning and and that pacino talking to the sheik in beirut or wherever he is and then at the end when they're getting the unabomber i mean has that been 18 months has it been three months like there's no real passage of time that we understand i bet you if you look closely at like the dates on the newspapers or like the cnn tickers and stuff i bet you man was very intentional about keeping that trajectory and i just want like i don't mean that as a knock i just think it's interesting that you know presumably all this stuff is happening and he uh, you know they have to go testify in the court in mississippi and they do all these things that are happening and then it gets on hold forever he gets a new job he moves he moves another time a lot is happening you just sort of go along with it you don't care you know some movies you're like has this been 24 hours has this been 24 months like i don't know the timing of this i'm confused and you never really care or think about it in this movie it's extraordinarily well handled uh p.s the aforementioned chic uh, played by the great Cliff Curtis, who also was uh, was in Three Kings, which we talked about a couple months back. I am a servant of God. <laughs> but when you think about Cliff Curtis and you look at his face, like I just he's he's covered with so much facial hair and so much like he was a relatively young man at that point. And um, <laughs> and then what? Two years later, when was uh, Training Day? Two years later, right? Two thousand one. Uh, then he's yeah, then he's yeah. playing basically just like a hardcore cholo dude who like puts <laughs> uh, puts Ethan Hawke in the bathtub. <laughs> Yeah, I uh, love the driving range scene. That's such a manish oh scene. God. That's such a manhunter esque scene, right? Yeah, and I, I take back what I say about the earlier when I was saying like the thriller stuff is kind of boring because that scene is amazing. Just the way it's shot and the night and they're yeah, it's beautiful. And it's some of the best usage of Pieter Bork and Lisa Gerard's incredible score. And they basically were unknowns at this point. They were coming from uh, the the band Dead Don't Dance. I think it's an Australian band, Dead Don't Dance. Lisa Gerard, at least, became kind of a phenomenon for the next few years. The next year, she does Gladiator with Hans Zimmer, and they get Oscar nominated. The score of this movie is so unique. It, it, it just falls right in line with all the crazy Tangerine Dream stuff he was doing in the in the 70s. I'm sorry, in the 80s, rather. He's just always had such a such a way with music. Um, the, the fact that Richard Scruggs, the lawyer, yeah. is flying his own plane. Like, it's so unnecessary. He's like, call me back in one minute. And then, like, two seconds later in the film, he's just in the office. Come on, guys. <laughs> I, I just, get it. But, you, but it's so clear that they shot it in a real plane, you know, which probably yeah, cost yeah. $3 million to do. It's just, I just, man is so upset. Like, he's so intentional about that. In Miami Vice, it's so important to him that... The Tubbs and Crockett are, are clearly guys who know how to fly a plane. It's just, I just find it to be so silly and un- unnecessary, but it's a wonderful little detail. Why does Philip Baker Hall's sweater match his couch pillows? Go back and look at that scene. 
He's he's coordinated <laughs> when he's sitting on his couch watching Matt, 60 Matt, minutes. no one's ever asked that question in the history of mankind. That's the first <laughs> time that sentence has ever been uttered. I swear to God, go back and look at it. He's wearing like a yellow, a weird yellow sweater and his couch cushions are the exact same shade of yellow. It's it's uncanny. Yeah, he's a rich New Yorker, man. They got weird fashion taste. And then, yeah, my, my last question was, is, is the beach phone call the best scene in the film slash the best scene in any man film? So uh, actually, let me, before you answer that, let me ask you what I think is a technical question of it looks like when Pacino is out there shooting it that it is not actually dusk like that and that to my untrained ignorant eyes and that they have manipulated either the camera lens you know the whatever it's called the f-stop or whatever or somehow done it in post to make it look like it is darker and more night Am I insane in thinking that? No, you're probably right. It's probably underexposed. Like it was probably yeah. shot during the day and they underexposed it to make it more dusky. This is Dante Spinotti, who was um, man's guy throughout the late 80s and pretty much throughout the 90s. And then man has since moved over to digital for a number of reasons. I mean, I think that's a scene that you could look at and be like, oh, that's the re- that's one of those scenes that just shows you why man wanted to shoot digitally so that he can control that stuff. So he could actually shoot that scene at dusk and see detail, you know, not have to like do optical tricks or photochemical tricks. I agree with you. It's beautiful. The the like colors of it, the aesthetic of it is just gorgeous. But now when I watch it, it bothers me. I'm like, I don't I think this is like the middle of the day and they're just underexposing it. Yeah. I mean, there's something a little bit kind of ethereal, a little weird about it, but it sort of plays into the fact that you also don't realize that he's walking further and further and further into the ocean until the camera goes wide. Also, how do we feel about that? That, oh, I have no reception on the land. Let me go into the ocean <laughs> in 1995 where I will get better cell phone reception. Well, it's, it's, it's got to be a satellite phone or something, right? right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> where is he, by the way? Is that Mexico? Is that like, do we know where he vacations? I mean, is it, yeah, is it Bermuda? But if he lives in Berkeley, is it in Hawaii? It's, it's a actually a pretty good question it seems like mexico to me you know mexico or costa rica or something like that but it's just it's the most amazing scene because it's so goddamn exciting despite the fact there's just two guys yelling at each other yelling at each other over the phone but it's a total bromance scene it's about pacino telling crow that he has so much to live for we're running out of heroes man you are important to a lot of people yeah and it's such a courageous moment for lowell because a lot of people would sort of give up on him and just sort of shrink away into the distance reminded that this guy is is sort of a badass uh and it's the most cinematic phone call maybe ever put on film <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and the long sleeve tee tucked into the shorts is a good look <laughs> that i rock myself so. that is a good look actually yeah when they go wide it's another example of some real good middle-aged man frumpy pants frumpy yeah. shorts from pleated shorts, I believe. But, it, you know, it's not the climax of the movie necessarily, but I put that right up next to, you know, De Niro and, and Pacino holding hands at the end of Heat in terms of how it just gives me the goosebumps, you know, to hear those guys talk to each other. It's it's just it's just a wonderful thing. That, that's probably Russell Crowe's Oscar clip right there. That scene where he's like staring off for five minutes and they're playing, you know, that music without get on the phone. And that's where they fuck with my life. Like I said, at the time it went over my head, it has since, in the ensuing 20 years, it's gone on to uh, be one of my all-time favorite movies. But this was a really important one for me to revisit because I feel like it just doesn't have that much of a legacy. I just feel like people don't talk about it very much, and it was just exciting to me that we we crossed this 20th anniversary. And we're we're actually a couple weeks late for a number of reasons to actually talk about this film. We're about a week and a half past the 20th anniversary, and I feel like I haven't seen any op-ed pieces, I haven't seen any hot takes, I haven't seen anybody revisiting this, so pretty important to me that we get to talk about it this way. Yeah, so I I think actually the reason I got invited on is because I had watched this, I don't know, four or five months ago, and I think I texted you that night, Matt, and I said, 
I think The Insider is my favorite movie of all time. Like, I think it has jumped over whatever was there before. Probably The Wilderness Blood or something. Yeah. Michael, Michael Clayton. <laughs> Every time I watch it, there, there, is, there is not a scene other than some of those, like, cheesy things of, like, Russell Crowe running down the hill and falling down or, like, you know, chasing the guy in the backyard. They just get a little tedious when you've seen it 20 times. All the dialogue is just pitch perfect. The performances are amazing. When they meet at the sushi restaurant or the Japanese restaurant, and Russell Crowe says, my father, you know, was the most ingenious man I ever knew. He's like, my father left when I was four. He was not the most ingenious man I ever knew. Let's talk about you. I'm just like, I'm so <laughs> on board with everything this guy's going to say for the next two and a half hours. It's those two scenes in Don's office towards the end. Per, like, if I could rewatch any film scene forever it would be probably one of two of those scenes and then the last thing i'll say i, I feel like i'm uh, said a bunch of critical things of this movie i claim is my favorite movie ever yeah that's kind of the, on brand for you right <laughs> <laughs> just the end the way the story wraps up is just perfect where like he gets the thing he does the unabomber stuff you finally understand sort of what's happening and then he quits and he walks out and they just queue up the like electric guitar slow-mo puts his collar up i thought i was gonna i thought it was gonna be like the matrix and he's going to just fucking fly into the air and be like, Oh, okay. This now it's a, it's a little over the top is my point, but it's perfect man. Masculinity yeah. stuff, right? It's like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. he is a fucking superhero. He is a he man of journalism. Right. And, uh, and you know, when I shoot these he men, I shoot them in fucking slow motion, popping their collars. And that's <laughs> With how their I black roll. jackets. Exactly. Oh, I mean, it's, it's very Miami vice. I think they tighten the timeline. I don't think Lowell quit that quickly, but he did go on to, Frontline and Frontline is probably the best, you know, news television show of the last 20, 30 years. So, I mean, he is a fucking hero. Like, good for you. Good. I'm sure Lil Bergen loves this movie. It's probably his favorite movie of all time. <laughs> so, yeah, this, I mean, be- you know, between Vincent Hanna and Lil Bergman, pretty damn impressive one two punch for for Pacino and man. And, and afterwards, I was just, even though I wasn't crazy about the movie, I was just like, all right, I, I, it looks like these guys are now gonna go they're gonna be joined at the hip now they're scorsese and de niro right here we go we we, man's found his muse and they haven't worked together since all right guys i think uh we're about hour 20 in feels good any any final final sentences or thoughts they do say in this movie this guy is the ultimate insider (laughs) how do do we feel about that we don't have to answer it we can take it off the (laughs) air take my answer off the air always always love when they say the title of the movie in a scene always yeah michael mann has no problem with that yeah (laughs) yeah when you spot the heat around the corner right exactly well i gotta say after this conversation you know one could say that the cat is totally out of the bag (laughs) (laughs) gonna smoke some more cigarettes get a little more gravel in there (laughs) i'll see what i can do but uh, thank you both for making the time i was really looking forward to this one and so i I appreciate both of you thank you both for having me always a pleasure look forward to hearing more episodes guys thank you brian so much Uh, we'll have you back soon and this has been we like movies retrospectating 1999 the insider say goodbye goodbye goodbye